Montana and our country lost a treasure last week. Brian Kahn passed away while on a hunting trip with his wife, Sandra. He was 73. Not long ago, I interviewed Brian for this podcast and later had the honor of being interviewed by him for his award-winning public radio program, Home Ground. Brian was precisely the sort of person our world needs right now, curious with some skepticism, inquisitive about new ideas, but demanding those ideas have substance, looking forward for better ways to solve problems, but doing so with a deep understanding of our history. Our friendship was all too brief, but my life is richer for it. In all of our correspondence, including an email exchange just a couple of weeks ago, Brian would ask me about my daughters, how they were doing. He was curious about the questions they were asking and how they are finding their way in the world. From my vantage point here at A New Angle, Brian's death redoubles my commitment to the important work of asking people who they are, what they think, and what they're doing about it. Thanks for the friendship and inspiration, Brian. I miss you. I send my condolences to your family. And I hope that on this election day and beyond, we can honor your work by looking for the best in each other and working together to solve big problems. One of my favorite sayings I've ever heard, I don't know who said this, but it was, it's, this place started going to shit 15 minutes after I got here. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today I speak with Brendan Leonard, the man behind Semirad. I started following Brendan's Semirad feed on Instagram several years ago. It's got a playful sensibility and an uncanny knack for making you consider the ordinary or obvious from a different perspective. It's really one of my favorite things. I connected with Brendan through some mutual friends after learning of his recent move back to Missoula. Happy to have him in our community, and I'm happy for you to learn more about Brendan's work right now. Okay, so you're here today with Brendan Leonard. Brendan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Otherwise known as Semi-Rad, that was, that was my entry point to your work a couple of years ago, and it's been super fun. Um learning that you are now a member of the Missoula community or, or, or a yet again, member of the Missoula community. This is not your first time around here. Um, yeah, let's start there. What was your first, uh, entry point to, to Montana? I know it's played a significant role in your life. Yeah. Um, boy, I had, you know, I'd grown up in Iowa and gone to college there and, um, barely graduated in 2001. Um, and then, had a series of, uh, <laughs> I was basically my, my introduction to Montana, the summer before I came here, I went to rehab for substance abuse for five weeks, spent a week in jail and then, um, moved to Missoula to go to grad school to get a master's degree in journalism. And so were, were your problems with alcohol sort of like through a through college thing or like, how did that kind of become get to the point where you had to kind of get some help? Uh, well, I, I think when, I think in addiction circles, they often describe it as first you have fun and then you have fun with problems and then you just have problems. And I went through the whole cycle pretty quickly. Um, so I started drinking when I was 15 uh, in my small town in rural Iowa. And then, yeah, just 
had a really, a lot of fun really quickly. Um, and by the time I was 20, yeah, like 21, things started going sort of wrong for me. And I was, you know, I was the only one having problems when we went out at, at night. And, um, yeah, just, it was, I feel like lucky to survive that part and lucky to have not really caused a ton of incredible damage to other people. Um, not that there wasn't, uh, some of that, but, um, but yeah, kind of just was finally got arrested enough times that the state said you go to rehab or you go to jail for six months. And, oh, so the choice had been kind of taken out of your hands in, 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 in some ways. Yeah. Which, which felt unfair at the time. And I felt like, gosh, I'm too young for this, blah, 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 all these things that I, I reasons I could think of that I shouldn't have to do it. And in retrospect, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. So yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, I'm, it was tough. It's been, it, it was really tough in the early years, but it was definitely better than six months in jail. Um, I, I think, I don't know. I haven't done six months in jail, but I assume it's not, not a, not a super party. So. Yeah. I mean, I doubt either a super pleasant option you're choosing kind of between two difficult things, but, um, but yeah, getting sober, getting cleaned up and then kind of getting some direction mo- moving out here to Montana was the, the next step. Yeah. And the, um, so I had, I got a marketing degree in undergrad, but the final year of it, I was kind of not sure I wanted to do any of the the jobs that I was seeing that I might be able to get when I graduated and saw an ad in the student newspaper and started writing a column for the student newspaper humor. Just really, I'm really glad that stuff's not on the internet because it was, it's really dumb, awful stuff, but it sort of, um, so once a week column and I'd write whatever I wanted and, you know, by halfway through the year, people would sort of every once in a while stop me on campus or at the bar and say, Hey, I read your thing. It was super funny or they liked it in some way. So it was this beginning of getting feedback for a newspaper column. And I thought, Oh, columnist, that's like a job, you know? And I didn't know that that wasn't a full-time job that you, you, you know, no newspaper was paying someone to write one column a week, um, and, you know, giving you 60 grand a year for that. But it kind of got me interested in journalism and Montana was one of the grad programs I found that took people who didn't have an undergrad in journalism. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and I don't remember at the time, you know, this is like 2001, 2002. I don't remember thinking much about that. It was in Montana or any of the other reasons people would move to Montana, like mountains and, um, beautiful scenery and culture and everything. I just remember thinking, well, this, this will work. And I got into, I think I applied to four places and got into two of them and, uh, chose Montana and was like, okay, let's try it. Yeah. And then you got here and seems like the mountains grabbed you pretty quickly. Yeah. I, um, so I was like, uh, let's see, March, I was probably about five, a little over five months into sobriety. So I was smoking a pack of cigarettes every day. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, this is wow. like one of these things that you think will, that is helping you hang on to, you know, by, by that thread. So, mm-hmm. um, but I had, you know, met a couple people who took me just sort of on day hikes, you know, down the Bitterroot or on Mount Sentinel and, um, one backpacking trip up to Glacier. Uh, I never backpacked before. Um, spent one night, four of us in a three person tent and, you know, woke up, hiked up the top of, I think, Swift Current Lookout and the view up there. I, I saw a photo of myself, you know, 
this was 2000, yeah, like October, 2002, I think. Uh-huh. And it just, just blew my mind, you know? And I think it was this thing, something clicked where it was like, I had spent the last five months not knowing who I was or what I, you know, what I should do next because you build this whole identity around sort of partying and, or whatever, whatever that is. And, uh, I realized like, well, this is something, you know, going out into the mountains is something people do every weekend. Maybe I can yeah. do more of this. Um, and it just sort of started to snowball from there. And I would think too, like that first glacier trip or, you know, these first few trips into the mountains, particularly when you're smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or whatever, can't like feel all that good physically. Although at that point you probably don't know what feeling good physically is. And then, you know, there's probably this self-reinforcing thing where like you're starting to make better life choices. You feel better on these outings. It's just, it, it kind of snowballs. You can do more stuff. You can go for longer. Yeah, I could see how that that could be very positively reinforcing over time pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I think of it as like, you know, when you start out, you're like literally, I think that trip, I definitely wore jeans and like probably a <laughs> co- I think I had like a cotton long sleeve t-shirt on. So you're wearing all cotton in the mountains. And I don't know if I even had hiking boots. And But you don't, if you don't know there's better gear, you're not that uncomfortable. You're just like, oh, but then later you think, you know, you start to get things that are comfortable and make, make things easier. And, and you realize how hard it was when you had, when you were wearing jeans and had a horrible backpack and a big, heavy sleeping bag. So I think the same way physically, you know, and, um, but yeah, slippery slopes, you're right. I'm now I'm eating vegetables and all, all that crazy stuff. So <laughs> making good life choices, all yeah. those things Eats and kale. starting to, and starting to get some formal training in journalism and starting to do your own writing. And so how, yeah, how does that kind of career in creative essentially start to kind of come to life? Yeah. I mean, um, when, at the time I was there and I would assume it still is, I think, you know, the journalism school is like, I think the ideal that you go in there with is like, like if you worked for, if you graduated and worked for the Washington post, that's like, that's a good outcome. Like that's, that's the ideal outcome. And I think when I was there, I was, I was learning all these things and learning how to do, because they do such a great job of teaching, putting you in a position where you could do that. Um, So you get this, I get this incredible foundation of basics of editing, design, reporting, all this stuff. And, you know, yeah, that would have been a great, a great thing to do to go work for a major market newspaper. But um I, I don't know that I really wanted to do that. Um, and I think in my mind, when I started here, I thought I'd love to work for or write for like Rolling Stone uh, or Spin Magazine at some point. And then I took a magazine writing class my second year, yeah, second semester of my second year. So right before I graduated and the requirement for grad students is that it was basically yeah, undergrad students than a handful of grad students. But if you're a grad student, you had to get published in order to pass the class. Okay, um, wow. So I was like, oh my God, how am I going to get published in Rolling Stone magazine? And I'm like, just <laughs> this lowly, you know, my publishing credits are like the Montana Kaiman and, you know, almost nothing else. And uh, a classmate said, you should try to write for Idaho magazine. They pay like $40 per article and they take pretty much anything. And I said, oh, okay, great. <laughs> It sounds like a win. Yeah. So I had done a little road trip the previous summer where a friend and I like visited Hemingway's grave in Ketchum, uh, went to Craters of the Moon National Monument and uh, climbed Bora Peak, the highest mountain in Idaho. 
mm-hmm. which was way beyond my fitness and skill level. Um, but we did it and I pitched them the, the story and they said, sure, well, that sounds great. We'll take it. You know, uh, looks like your friend took some photos. Why don't you send us those? And, um, I got published and I got my $40 and that just a light bulb went on and it was like, wow, I could, you know, make a, make a sort of a living, um, writing about adventures or these things that I do outdoors on the weekends. And, you know, I didn't, didn't, my brain didn't do the math and go, okay, $40 per article. How many articles is that to make a living? Um, it's, it's quite a lot. So I think my first year freelance income was $40. The next year was like 150 and the next year was like 1800 bucks or something like that. So I left Montana in 2004. Um, and I worked at a couple different, really small like suburban newspapers that didn't i don't know if anyone was actually reading them um (laughs) over the next five years and on the side you know i would go to work every day and think this is fine i'm using my degree but this is not what i want to do i want to write for like outside magazine and backpacker and climbing uh, because i was getting into rock climbing at that time and uh so i would pitch i would write pitch letters you know and, and try to come up with article ideas and you know overnight success story from 2004 to like 2010 ish. I feel like did not get into any of these major magazines, but I finally got something in like climbing magazine, I think 2011. So it took me that many years to, to figure out a way in. Yeah. A lot of grinding. What, why did you, I mean, what, what made you stick with it? Cause I've heard this origin story from a, a few different adventure writers, Mark Sinnott, his, his story, yeah. his experience at Middlebury college and in a similar class and, you know, getting something published. Um, and, and, and that the sort of the hook setting in at that moment, you know, and he stuck with it too, through a bunch of up and down, you stuck, I mean, to grind that out for so long, one, there's just sort of the, how actually you pull it off and sustain a life, but then, you know, the sort of will to continue when, <laughs> right. you know, you're getting a ton of rejection and you're not making much money. Yeah. Why, why'd you stick with it? I mean, you hear early on about, you know, stories like very famous books that have been rejected over a hundred times, like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which has sold like millions of copies was rejected over a hundred times. And it becomes this sort of uh, badge of honor, American dream, like Olympic hopeful story that we, we are such big fans of, you know, against all odds. And like, um, so I think there's probably some romanticism in there, but sure. Also you just want to do it. And, um, along the way I was having, like, I was eventually getting smaller successes, you know, where I started to get articles published in the mountain Gazette. Um, if you remember that magazine, um, Mm -hmm. which, which is coming back, I guess this year. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Backpacker, but it was a cool magazine that I respected. And it was very legitimate for me to to have that in there. But yeah, I don't know. I've always been, I've always been a, a work harder, not smarter person, you know, and sure. an easier way in would be to, you know, have studied more and gone to like the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern and then, you know, interned at Outside Magazine or something like that or or network or, or whatever. And I didn't, I just was like, I'm just going to keep writing until something happens. And eventually something, eventually things started to happen, but it was very slow for me. And I think that's maybe good because then when you're making mistakes early on, they're in front of a small audience and no one knows who you are as opposed to like your first stories being published in 
the New York Times, which sure. probably, probably doesn't happen to very many people. But well, yeah, I mean, along those lines, could you feel yourself getting better as you were as you were moving through this process? I mean, getting some external validation, getting into better outlets closer to the space you want to be in. Yeah. But can you feel your can you feel yourself getting better as a creator, as a writer? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think if you go to work and you think you're you're congratulating yourself. It's probably a bad, bad way to start. Yeah, so totally. from no matter what point in your career. But, uh, I, you know, um, 2011, I did collected a healthy amount of rejection letters and <laughs> was getting really good at pitching things to magazines that they didn't want to run. Um, so I just started my own blog, um, February, 2011 and was like, I'll just put stories that I think are funny or that I can make something out of on here. And I'll do that. I'm going to do one of these every week for, I don't know, a year or until something happens. And, um, it was, it was good timing. And within a few weeks, maybe like two or three months, I started seeing the traffic go up a little bit, like not, not a huge amount. Like it wasn't like a mega viral post, but it was like, there were people reading it. People were commenting, people were sort of sharing things on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And it, it was, yeah, it was validation that you're kind of figuring out what people were uh, responding to. Right. Yeah. You have some sort of, uh, you know, however, maybe it's intuitive, maybe it's analytical, but you have some data starting to come in where you can sort of say, oh yeah, these sorts of things people like, they engage with. Um, yeah. yeah. That can be kind of guiding as well. Basically. Yeah. And then um, a few months into the blog, I had um, Steve Casimiro, who has, who started and has run Adventure Journal for over a decade now, he reached out through a friend and said, Hey, I like some of your stuff that you're putting on your blog. What do you think about me also publishing it on my website, adventure journal, and I'll link back to your blog. So that was a huge validation because he yeah. was, you know, founding editor of bike magazine, editor of powder, you know, Na national geographic adventure. So that made me think, okay, I am kind of doing something right. And in, in turn, you know, having him publish my stuff led a lot of people to my, to my work. So it sort of was this big hand up from, from somebody who was very established and not to toot my own horn, but I think Steve has like really good taste, not, not just me, but like sure. the way he does things. So that was extremely huge for me. Um, and I, I owe him, you know, a good chunk of my life for, for doing that. And so speaking of your, your blog, semi-rad, you know, I was sort of, I was scrolling through your, um, your 100 favorite things or 100 things. And I scroll to the bottom because I was thinking he's this guy's got to like XKCD and yeah XKCD is number one hundred. <laughs> it's you know when I first came across your Instagram posts and the, the charts that you produce, it just it, it the two um, have some similarities that are, are striking. And yeah, talk about when you first started doing those visuals, and I'd love to kind of understand how those ideas come to life. Yeah, I mean, I think the, f the first thing I did was probably in like 2014. I did a flowchart um, about, gosh, now I don't remember which one. There's one that was called, Is There a Cute Girl at the Climbing Gym? And it was basically making fun of male sort of peacocking. But it was like this instruction manual, like, is she looking at you? Okay, we'll do this. Is she looking at you? No. So, okay, do this. So, you know, did, did you take your shirt off? Are you grunting loudly or whatever? And that sort of went really viral for, for me, you know, not a huge, um, uh -huh. not breaking the internet, but like really went around. And I was like, 
it was just something I drew on a literally a sheet of printer paper in a coffee shop and then took a photo of and posted it. And so that kind of, kind of illustrated to me the idea that you could make these things that people, it wasn't a lot of work for people to read it. And it was a joke or sort of a way, a story about, about humans. Um, and people liked them and liked to share them. Um, and it was easier than for a lot of people than getting into like a, 1200 word blog entry or whatever. Um, so I started doing those and then I started drawing stuff on Instagram, you know, on like little sheets of graph paper or whatever, um, just sort of simpler charts that were squares. And in 2016, I decided to buy an iPad to make it sort of more professional. And then, you know, like, I don't know if I thought this at the time, but like, if you have a digital image, you can actually do something with it as a, you know, as opposed to a photo of something drawn on graph paper, like sure, if now it's an asset. All yeah, of a sudden. you can make a poster or a T-shirt or a coffee mug or something like that. So I started doing that, and that sort of has that iPad is probably one of the best twelve hundred dollar purchases I've ever made um, because of that. And so. So, yeah, so the format has great utility. Um, and you mentioned sort of, yeah, it's, it's easier for somebody to get into and quickly kind of consume and get versus a 1200 word blog post. But at the same time, like to make a good one, you know, one, there's sort of the, the, the observation of something that you decide is interesting and you want to communicate, but I, uh, to get it right. I mean, there's a, there's a ton happening in your posts that, um, you know, tell us about the process of, of, of sort of working, you know, observing an idea like the thing in the climbing jib and then actually making it happen. I'm sure some of them happen like super quick and then others are maybe a, a grind. Yeah. And some of them don't, don't do very well. And <laughs> I, like a very small handful of them do really well and go around the internet or whatever. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. I just try to, I try to create a little bit of space in my life where I'm not looking at the internet or my phone or whatever. And, Oftentimes that's on long runs, um, long trail runs or runs around the city or just walking the dog. And I'll think of something and just have a note about it. If I have my phone with me, I'll type it into my phone. Just a few things like, like a note would be maybe running is so simple, you know, um, jokes about why it's actually not simple. And then later I'll come back and sit down and try to draw it or I'll, or I'll write a lot of, um, I guess I approach it mostly as a writer because everything I do has words in it because I can't draw very well. So it's more of like a sort of visual uh, story, I guess. So it's there's a lot of writing in it. Um, and then I'll, I'll sit down and try to draw the thing and make sure it looks as, as good or as clear as I can do it um, and make it as simple as possible for people to understand. Because, I mean, there are tons of different ways you can actually um, visualize data. Um, but very few of them are understood by adults who are not taking like college classes in that subject. So you can't really make things too complicated. I've learned. Um, and the more complicated things are the worse, you know, the worse they'll do sometimes. A new angle is brought to you by first security bank and Blackfoot. Two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hey, this is Mark Moss from Tell Us Something, and you're listening to A New Angle. Um, and then basically I show it to my wife, who's also a writer and editor, and uh, 
she will say, yeah, I think that, I think that'll work or yeah, that's really funny. And then I'll say, okay, thank you. And then uh, and put it online. So it's not a extremely scientific process. Um, but yeah, it's, she's my, the, she's the, the barrier between me and the, and the world. Um, and does, you know, every once in a while I'll put the kibosh on some things and be like, yeah, I don't know if you want to do that. Unless, right. Yeah. That's probably the best type of editor you could ask for. Oh yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. I was reading one of your blog posts. It mentioned, you know, the privilege of, of leisure time and having leisure time and having time to, you know, sort of the time and, and, and privilege really to get out in the mountains and, and do things with your body, et cetera. And, you know, privilege is a concept that I think is, is, it's not necessarily taken on new meaning, but it's taken on new salience in the last several months. Um, you know, and ideas around leisure, ideas around conservation, ideas around access, uh, those things, you know, I think people are thinking about these things in a way they, they, they maybe hadn't thought of before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How have those thoughts, you know, as one who, who sort of adventures and writes about those activities, uh, be it your own activities or the activities of others, how have you kind of been grappling with this, uh, this new salience right now? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting time to be trying to make art. Um, and I think, especially as a white straight guy, you know, who right. did not, I did not, I didn't grow up rich, but I did not grow up uncomfortable. Like I never, never once had to wonder where food was coming from. Um, but I think if you have any sort of perspective, you have to, you know, and I've, I've been woken up, you have, if you have any sort of perspective, you have to realize, you know, that you are tremendously privileged, even things you don't think are privileged, you know, um, which is, which has been an education for me over the past couple of years too. Um, mm-hmm. not only just to be able to freely go about trails, um, you know, I can go running it at night, you know, and, and maybe that's a situation where my wife and other women are not comfortable doing uh, in a city or in a trail, or whatever, not to mention if you're a person of color in, in certain places in, in America or the world, you know, how, how differently that affects you. Um, and I also think, I guess lately I'm thinking about it in the words of my friend, Alex, who's the editor of Adventure Cyclist Magazine, you know, does the world need to hear more from a 40 year old white guy right now? Right, and right. yeah, so I don't, um, I try not to make so much i'm trying to make art that is that is sort of universal to people who are in the outdoors as opposed to just talking about my experience um trying to lean that way for sure um and you know it's a tricky time to be trying to talk about social justice issues as well uh and to think about all the different angles in the way people who follow you might perceive something you say and you know, even if you're trying to do the right thing, how that could be construed as the wrong thing or you're leaving somebody out. And um, I've been very, very careful to try to not, um, you know, step on toes and and put that sort of messaging or that sort of uh, put that movement backwards by saying something um, that's ill-informed or whatever. So I've been very, um, I've had very limited sort of posts about that sort of thing, but uh, also trying to carefully consider when I do and then wanted to say something and not, um, let's see, how would I say this? I guess when you put those sorts of things up, is it helping further conversation without alienating people, no matter 
what their beliefs are. You know, um, I don't like to, I don't like to make things that further divide people. Right. Especially right. now. Um, mm-hmm. so that's, that's a thing to consider too. And I probably over consider the audience in, in many ways and oftentimes end up not saying anything that's very pithy or, or meaningful, but, um, but yes, um, I think it's, I think it's an important time and it, considering the privilege that you have will help you bring, help us all get closer together and help move things forward, um, towards, uh, a better, a better place for everyone. And, um, some of the, some of the work I do is, uh, hosting a podcast and we have made a very concerted effort this year to, I'm in my head, I'm just going like, we're not interviewing white guys. We are two white guys, um, on the podcast hosting it. And I'm like, we just need to not interview white guys for like six or eight months. You know, I don't want to be nothing against white guys. I am one. Um, but, but there are so many other voices out there that, um, need amplifying, uh, to talk about their experiences. So that's been, that's been a way around putting myself in front of the microscope, I guess, is allowing other people's voices, other, other people with other experiences to talk about those, um, and interview them instead of saying, this is what I think, you know, this is how I think things should be or whatever. Um, so. Yeah, I think it's, it is a challenge. I mean, I've thought about that and grappled with that with this, with this podcast, um, you know, try to have diverse voices on as many dimensions as mm-hmm. I can. Um, and we need to do way better. And, you know, we've been called out by various listeners and, and, and ultimately like I see that as a compliment in the sense that people are looking to the platform to, to weigh in on some of this stuff. And it is that tricky thing. Like there's this sort of Hey, pump the brakes. The world doesn't need to hear from another white guy, but there's also the sort of, you know, silence equals violence kind Mm -hmm. of framing as well. So it almost seems like anybody with a platform, there's a little bit of a a responsibility to do something. It's just sort of, what is that something like what, what can actually be meaningful? And I think there's also got to be space to sort of try and fail you know, yeah, like, like, Hey, I tried and I didn't quite get it right. And as long as you sort of do it in good faith with humility, that, that hopefully your audience will give you a chance. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's a challenge. Um, but things like, you know, conservation, I had not really thought about it as like this, this white Eurocentric concept. Um, and it certainly is one. And we go play in these public lands. And that's sort of a, a, a wacky social construction that, 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 that white people created. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and you know, you're now seeing people like acknowledging, you know, the, the lands were, you know, ancestral lands of, of mm-hmm. native American people and first nation peoples in Canada. Um, and it, that's, that's helpful. I think, um, and I think it's very important to recognize that, but yeah, it's, you're, you're kind of going, Oh, Yosemite national park. Like, Oh wow. This isn't really okay. This is a, yeah. not, it's not like it was just created one day by white people. Um, so yeah, all of that's interesting and messy and as you know, there, we're trying different things to promote healing and, you know, um, but it's, you know, it's, we have a long way to go obviously, but I think I am, um, I am hopeful because I think I see things happening 
that that are leading us in in that direction as opposed to just you know ignoring it to continuing to ignore it you know um i think about you know i read people's history of the united states when i was 20 i think mm-hmm. sitting on the porch of a house in college smoking cigarettes reading and you know, just being appalled by all these horrible things that had happened but i think it took me gosh another like 19 years to start going okay what can i do what can i actually do to put my money where my mouth is instead of just feeling bad um, so working to, to do those things and do them in the right way, um, is, is definitely important because I guess in the adventure industry, quote unquote, or the outdoor industry where I've worked, it is, you know, it is at some point, if you want to be cynical about it, you can say, geez, all I do is help, you know, rich people go on vacation and mm-hmm. it shouldn't, shouldn't be like that. You know, it's like, yeah, if you do, if all you talk about is resort skiing and ice climbing, yeah, that's not, those are pretty, you know. Um, those are, they're high barriers to entry in those sports, but, you know, a, a friend of ours pointed out that outside is not, not necessarily on top of a 14,000 foot peak or, or rock climbing, you know, it can be a city park, um, and it can be people having a picnic and that's true too. So I think about it in those terms as well. Um, these like municipal parks and how great of a thing they are. Um, we think conservation, we think national, you know, like we think national parks, but really like, like central park in New York is a pretty amazing piece of conservation. Um, city, yeah, city and park the good that does for so many people is, is immense. It's very accessible. You know, the, a lot of the city park system in Denver where we used to live was created because, um, it was a place for basically the riffraff to go while the rich people went up to the mountains, went up to winter park and South park. Um, and so they thought these city park systems will be where the the lower class people can hang out. So that's why there's some extensive city park system there. Um, but nowadays it's it's a wonderful place for a lot of people. So yeah, yeah. yeah and then you think about this sort of continuum of of the way people are engaging with the outdoors, and you know, it, there's there's inspiration and aspiration, right? Like you see. Yeah, you know, I, re- I read your 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 post about um, the Don Wall a, a few years back, and you know, in many ways, like yeah, that's this privileged activity of these elite athletes. But at the same time, if it inspired people to get out and, and expand their own realm of possibilities, whether it's at the city park or in their home gym or whatever, that's important too, and that has a lot of value. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's the that's the essence of inspiration to me. You know, it's like. Sure, we follow really uh, high-achieving athletes, but we don't sit down and go, "Okay, now I'm going to climb the Dawn Wall." You know, you right. do you do your own your own Dawn Wall in in Tommy Caldwell's words. You know, mm-hmm. I was talking to my dad the other day, and he said, "I am still working on cleaning out the garage." And I said, "Dad, I think I think you've been working on cleaning out the garage for years. I believe the garage is your Dawn Wall at this point." You know. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, mean, I feel like I have a dawn wall everywhere I look around this place. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. So let's um let's sort of just pivot to you came back to Missoula and, and came back over this past summer and you talk about that decision and then wow, moving in the midst of a pandemic and trying to re-enter or trying to enter a community under those conditions. That's gotta be a pretty bizarre experience. Yeah. I mean, for me coming back here in the last five years and short visits was I, um, I have to work to separate 
do I like the town or do I just have extreme nostalgia for that time in my life when it was probably one of the hardest, but most, uh, most important times in my life. Um, so it's a weird thing. You know, I'm, I'm 41 and I, I, I often have to go, do I miss that? Or do I just miss being young? You know? Um, so that was important, but, um, you know, we, we wanted some place where we could have just a little bit more space because my wife and I were working out of a 850 square foot half duplex, um, in, in Denver. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's the awareness of if you move to Montana, you are those people from Colorado who are moving to Missoula and, you know, you know, like you're, you're going to be that person to somebody, you know, most of the people we talk to are not, not bad about that, but occasionally, you know, you're talking to somebody in the DMV or, you know, um, you know, well, and then right now, like with COVID, you got all, this, sure. you know, there's all this other sort of t- territorialism that's happening, that's, right. you know, that I can feel it in myself and I don't like it, but I understand it. Right. And so I'm in a position, you know, like I've, my life is built on leaving places that, you know, or whatever, going in the new place, the next best place. And our neighborhood in Denver where we could afford to live, uh, was, you know, and it's, we were probably second wave gentrification and walking the dog. It was one of the most diverse neighborhoods I ever lived in. It was fantastic in so many ways, but you do have this feeling like I'm displacing probably a family of color by being here. Um, so, and that's a huge problem in cities as well. So, what do you do? Do you just leave or do you stay there or, or how do you, you know, you're displacing someone no matter where you go. And so now it's like, it's a sort of, um, it's a non, uh, non-racial, um, gentrification of some places like Missoula, Bozeman, um, probably people, you would even say Portland and Bend, you know, a few, few years ago. Right. So you're always putting somebody out. So like, what's my option? Do I move back to Iowa? And then people say, Oh, you came back, huh? Hmm. You know, and, a few people are going to be like, well, what happened? Did you fail? Or so you're kind of, you're kind of like, okay, where do we want to go? Uh, make people mad at us. Uh, but we, I haven't experienced a ton of that, but I know, I know it's here. And I know that, um, you know, I know that people in Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, many States have, you know, always not been psyched on Californians moving here for probably, I don't know, 50 years, you know, and mm-hmm. in Colorado, I, I used to jokingly call it Texism where people would not like Texans, you know, moving to Crested Butte or having summer homes there or whatever. So there's always that sort of outside influence. So I shouldn't keep talking about it because that's <laughs> well, just sort of a constant. I mean, I think we all just sort of develop an identification with our our tribe yeah. find that however yeah. it's pragmatic, whether it's Missoula or Montana or the rattlesnake or the West side or whatever. And, and, yeah. you know, once you're in it, you sort of feel like you have ownership of it. And, you know, some of those sort of effects are, are well-grounded in, in social psych. It's just kind of the way we, we operate. Um, that's not to say we should still operate that way. One of my favorite sayings I've ever heard, I don't know who said this, but it was, it's, this place started going to shit 15 minutes after I got here. Um, <laughs> exactly. And I, I think about that a lot, but it's like, what is it? That Groucho Marx quote, the, I would never be a member of any club that would have me as a member or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, but you know, it's like people who live here know what an amazing place it is. And I think being conscious to be here, not not uh, not make it a worse place and eventually make it a better place, but in a way that is not 
um, is not feeling like an outsider trying to change things, you know, like, why don't you have more yoga studios, you know, or whatever, um, like learning to be a part of the community in, in, in a positive way and, you know, helping, helping move it forward, but not also not like, not sort of bringing what your idea of a city should be to a, to a city that doesn't want it, you know, or, or right. like has much better things to offer that you can't see because you're, you have blinders on. So if that makes any sense. It does. So speaking of that, and in our last few minutes, I want to sort of get a sense for what's next for you. Um, you know, you write a lot about the importance of the grind and the importance of sort of just doing the work, um, of figuring out how to get inspired. Uh, how, you know, how do you, how do you stay inspired and what's inspiring you? Like what's, what's kind of the, the, um, the next thing and how's that connected to, to what you've been doing? Yeah. I mean, most of the times the inspiration is not wanting to get a real job. Um, so that's good inspiration. I've been trying to avoid that for as long as I can remember. Well, congratulations. You know, I mean, it's (laughs) no, it's, uh, I think, you know, you, you start to think about where your best stuff comes from and it's not like, Hey, this will sell or this will get clicks. You know, it's more like, especially this year for sure. Like people need something. Um, and you're trying to guess what that is. And, I think some weeks I, I believe people could use a good laugh. That's not, uh, not a joke about coronavirus, you know, um, where you can help them escape for a few minutes about thinking about something else that's quote unquote normal, as opposed to like more jokes about quarantine or uh, lockdown or, or whatever, um, that takes you out of that news cycle for a minute or, you know, just inspiring people to do something that they may not have considered before. Um, so I think a lot about along those lines and I always try to, um, try to grasp the universality. I don't know if that's a word. I'm a writer. I should know that. The, Sounds good to me. What's universal about our experience? Um, because I don't think my life is interesting enough to warrant just blabbing on about it and what's happening to me. Um, it's, you can use those stories as an entry point to talk about things like why do we travel or, um, what are we, you know, what are we looking for? Why does this make us happy? Why does this not make us happy? Um, so trying to tap into that and try to figure out what people are, what people need, I guess. And your, your metric is how many people, you know, read your stuff and you can see that or tap, you know, the like button on Instagram. So I, one of the biggest posts I've had this year was about, um, it was a very long illustrated post about anxiety and how I've been trying to work on that or not work on it. And I feel like that's just sort of the feeling of our times. I don't know if it's 2020 or generally in the last five years, but I feel like a lot of people are dealing with that stuff. And I don't personally see it as being like super brave for me to talk about. It doesn't feel uncomfortable, but I think a lot of people don't see um, people talking about those things. And it's when you do talk about it, it gives them um, comfort to feel like they're not alone, which if you, if that's, if you can make one person feel less alone with your week, I think that's a pretty good way to make a living, you know, and a pretty good way to spend your time. Um, and if you can make a hundred people feel less alone, that's, that's even better. Um, even better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, Brendan, that's an, an inspiration. Thank you for that work, for the attitude you bring to it. Thanks for being a part of Missoula. I'm excited to meet you in person someday. Um, it's been fun learning more about your work. And, uh, yeah, thanks for, for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Yeah, thanks for having me, Justin.
Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot with support from the University of Montana College of Business and Consolidated Electrical Distributors. AJ Williams is our producer. Jeff Amet, John Wicks, and VTO made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at newmontana.edu. If you like what you heard, tell your friends about us. Thanks a lot. and see you next time.